0: be seated. Take your Bibles if you would please and turn me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 25 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 25 and we're going to read this story. It's a relatively long story in the book of Samuel. We're going to read it together this morning so you follow along. Uh, David is still on the run, he is in the wilderness, Saul is still chasing him, and uh, he here meets a fool and then a very wise woman. Uh, while you're turning to make sure to give you time, I just was uh, reminded this morning why we sing when we gather together complicated songs like Be Thou My Vision with its words that are, uh, and images that are not easy to absorb, and then we sing easier songs. Like, bless the Lord, all oh my soul, several of our children, were. Uh, that's an easier song to sing and they were singing along with it and it was wonderful to see. So we sing songs that are easier to grasp and songs that are more challenging uh, for all of us. So um, that's good. Ryan's doing a fine job. So First Samuel 25, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Ma'on who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He he, he was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, so he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. (coughs) Now I hear that it, it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men. Since we came at a festive time, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings and he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us and the whole time we were out in the fields near them nothing was missing. Night and day there were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him a terrible thing to say about someone right let it not be said of anybody in this room can't tell that guy anything well listen verse 18 abigail acted quickly she took 200 loaves of bread two skins of wine five dressed sheep five says of roasted grain a hundred cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys then she told her servants go on ahead i'll follow you but she did not tell her husband nabal As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there was David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing, he has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belongs to him. It's an unusual translation, strange English. Uh, David uses... a. euphemism for men here that is vulgar your translation doesn't have he's mad He's just mad verse 23 when abigail saw david she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before david with her face to the ground she fell at his feet and said pardon your servant my lord and let me speak to you hear what your servant has to say Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see my man, the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies be all, and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you. If you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. He's a fool after all, right? So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and am ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers, and became his wife. By the way, David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both were his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Peltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. I have read this story probably a dozen times but it wasn't until this week in which I was preparing for uh, this study that I came to realize really how, uh, what a wonderful, uh, great story it is. It's so well told. The characters are very interesting. And it folds into the narrative of 1 Samuel so perfectly. Here we meet a woman whose name is Abigail. And she delivers the longest speech of any woman in the Old Testament. Not Sarah, not Rebecca, not Ruth. Just uh, Abigail, this long speech. She's beautiful, she's intelligent, and she's rich. She's got five maids. No one else in the Bible, in the scripture, has five maids. When she became a widow, she must have been the most eligible woman in all of Judah. I I wish I knew more about her. I wish I knew what happened to her more. She married David. I, I I wish she'd had more influence on him. It might have saved him from making some very foolish choices. Part of the wonder of the story comes, too, from her husband, Nabal, and how he is a stand-in for Saul. Saul, we've been following David and Saul this whole time. Um, Saul is out of the picture except at the end, but Nabal kind of stands in for him. Both of them call David contemptuously that son of Jesse. Um, Nabal's at a banquet fit for a king. Both of them are identified as fools in these chapters. So Nabal's kind of the Saul figure here. There's a lot of artistry in this chapter, but what I'm actually most interested in this morning is how this story helps us think about issues of injustice and revenge. After Corrie Ten Boom was released from the concentration camp where she'd been imprisoned during World War II, she released a book, and it was called Prison Letters. You know, Corrie Ten Boom and her family were hiding Jews in their home in the Netherlands from uh, the Germans and somebody turned them in. Corrie Tenboom found out about it and wrote a letter to this man who was their betrayer. Listen to what she wrote. Today I heard that most probably you are the one who betrayed me. I went through ten months of concentration camp. My father died after nine days of imprisonment. My sister died in prison too. The harm you planned was turned into good for me by God. I came nearer to him. I have forgiven you everything. God will also forgive you everything if you ask him. He loves you and before he himself, he loves you and he himself sent his son to earth to reconcile your sins, which meant to suffer the punishment for you and me. You on your part have to give an answer to this. Never doubt the Lord Jesus' love. He is standing with his arms spread out to receive you. I hope the path which you will now take may work for your eternal salvation. It's an astounding letter. Uh, it, it coheres perfectly with what the Lord Jesus said about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. God clearly did himself this great work of grace in Corey Tenboom's life. These, these lines are beautiful and worthy of contemplation. I want God to work in my mind and heart the way he worked in Corey Tenboom's mind and heart. I'm not even this kind with people who are going too slow on the road ahead of me. Look what she writes. My only question about this letter is is it complete? The letter itself is is complete, but, but does it contain the sum total of how followers of Jesus are supposed to respond to such grievous mistreatment? If it's complete, if it's complete and this is everything, what do we do with all the references in the Old Testament, all the pleading that David himself does with God when he cries out for justice and asks God to kill his enemies? What do we do with those um we read it last week do you remember david's words in psalm 35 verse 7 he said since they hid their net for me without cause and without cause dug a pit for me may ruin overtake them by surprise may the net they hid entangle them may they fall into the pit to their ruin then my soul will rejoice in the lord and delight in his salvation would Cory ten boom write something like this I suggested to you that you could pray this way, that the Psalms have all these verses like this to teach us how to pray. And someone after the service said to me, are you sure about that? I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can pray this way without cultivating resentment or bitterness or anger in my life. It's a great question. James warned us, doesn't he? He said, human anger does not produce God's good purposes. So what do we do? I want to move through this chapter that we have, scene by scene. I want to show you some of the wonderful things about what's written here. Uh, I borrowed the scene titles from a commentator named Bill Arnold. This, this chapter is chiefly about the folly of revenge. And there's things about wisdom and leadership too that we'll, we'll look at here. After talking through those four scenes, what I want to do is I want to finish by giving you some reminders that, that I think come from the text that try to encapsulate what David learns about responding to what the text identifies as evil. How do you respond when wicked people do things to you? I want I, to encapsulate what, what David learns here in this chapter. All right, let's start with scene number one, okay? Scene number one is very simple. It's in verse one, the death of Samuel. That's what happens first. That's how the chapter begins. Samuel dies. It's strange. Samuel's one of the main characters in this book. It's a, the book is named after him. He's kind of an absent since chapter 16, but here he dies, and his death fits in here in this place because, remember, last week we talked about in chapter 24, Saul has finally now acknowledged that David is going to be king after him. Saul said, You will be king. And so it's appropriate. Samuel has done his work, he has anointed both kings, uh, the first and second king of Israel, and he dies. But now that he's dead, David must have been sensing a little bit of isolation. Well, that scene. One Scene two, we'll move through quickly and we'll spend a long time in. Um, Scene two, Nabal rejects David's request. Nabal rejects David's request. It's in verses two through 13. We're introduced to a man whose name is Nabal. Actually, what's interesting, we hear about his wealth first and then we get his name. And, And what it says about Abigail is just the opposite. We get her name first and then her character. Um... Wealth in the Old Testament is often a sign of blessing. It's often a sign of righteousness and, and, and living a good and self-controlled life. So when the Bible tells us that he's very wealthy, we have very high hopes for this man. Oh, he's going to be an honorable and good man. And then we learn his name is Nabal, which means fool. It's probably not the name his mother gave him. It's the name that suits the, the story here. It's jarring in the text is it, a little bit. Imagine here that I started telling you a story. I said, once upon a time, in a village not too far from here, there was a beautiful young woman. She was recognized by people for miles around as the most beautiful, alluring young woman anybody had ever seen. And her name was Ugly McUggface. <laughs> right. Something's wrong, Right? You have this description, and then, oh, her name is ugly? What's wrong? Something's wrong with this girl, right? Same thing. That's exactly what's happened. There was a man, who was very wealthy, and his name was Fool. Oh, something's wrong. Something is off. The text tells us about it. He is, verse 3, surly and mean. (sighs) Nice. Now, in contrast to that, there is his wife. Her name is Abigail. Her name means my father is joy or my father is joyful. Nabal is surly and mean. Abigail is intelligent. Now intelligent here is not just uh, an intellectual word. He's not saying something merely about her mind. He's talking about her character too. It's a moral word. It's a word that has been applied to David. In fact, it says she is intelligent and beautiful. David, the text tells us, earlier, is intelligent and he's good looking too. Nabal and Abigail, sorry, Abigail and David match one another. They fit. They're both good looking, upright people. Abigail does not match Nabal, her husband. He's surly and mean and the text doesn't say, but he's probably ugly too. (laughs) So Abigail's like David. Nabal is like Saul, David's nemesis. Now the situation here is strange to us. You might be inclined to think that this is some sort of mafia shakedown that David is doing on Nabal. Some commentators have seen this, so David sends his servants to Nabal and they say to him, Hey Nabal, you got some nice sheep here, Nabal. Sure would be a shame if something bad were to happen to these sheep. I'll tell you what, Nabal, you David and me, we'll watch your sheep. Does that sound good? We'll watch your sheep and for a little fee, just a little bit. Because you know, if something happened to those sheep, it would be really bad. You know? Some of you have that in your mind, okay? That's what you're thinking about in this story. That's not what's happening. Uh, the, the Bible has nothing but praise here for how David interacts with Nabal and his servants. In fact, Nabal's servants, uh, they praise David. He's so kind. He was, he was. David and his men are near these sheep. They're on the run. They've got to be hungry. The temptation for outlaws to take the sheep must have been severe. And, and David, he's a shepherd, right? What does he do? He protects Nabal's sheep. He, he is he is honorable. He's upright. In fact, he is he's doing voluntary work for Nabal to protect him and his property. Uh, so he sends servants. In, in light of the, uh, the generosity of David's spirit, he asks Nabal for kindness in return. Sheep shearing season is a high point of the year. There's lavish celebrations. There's grand gestures. Nabal has the means. And some people may argue on the basis of what the Old Testament talks about when it speaks about neighborliness, Nabal has the means and perhaps the obligation, even, to help David, to show David kindness, to respond in kind to him. But remember, Nabal is surly and he's mean. He doesn't respond well. In, in, in verse, verse 10, he says that David's just a rebellious servant. A rebellious servant. I don't I don't a servant. I don't owe him anything. verse 11, it's not in the English, but he he uses the word I, me, or mine eight times in this one sentence. Why should I give my sheep that I have prepared for my servants to this guy? I don't know him. I don't owe him anything. Now, David doesn't respond to this insult very well either. So Nabal doesn't respond to David, and David doesn't respond to Nabal very well either. Verse 13 says that he immediately called his troops to war. And in verse 13, again, in the original language, it uses the word sword three times. Do you remember David's relationship with swords? It's not good. He's a warrior, right? So he uses a sword a lot. But remember when we first met David in, in 1 Samuel 17, when he is going to fight Goliath, what does he say to Goliath? Not by sword or spear. I'm not coming to you with a sword or spear. I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord God. And then uh, we saw that scene where he was on the run and, and he was his faith was wavering and the thing he wanted the most in the whole world was the sword. So David is not doing well. He is angry and he's acting impetuously. This is not the sign of a good leader. He's being impulsive and he's being reckless. You cannot lead people well if as soon as someone does something, you receive as dishonor or a little bit of contempt or an insult. If the first thing you do is you pick up your phone and start tweeting out insult, um, David, if you pick up your sword and go after, try to chop people's heads, something's wrong. Being impulsive, he's being reckless. Now, there's there's something else here that we should think about, though. Nabal is playing the fool. He has legitimately attacked David. He doesn't merit losing his head. We'll, we'll talk about that in, in a minute. But this is a real offense. It's not imaginary. It's not nothing. I mention this because I think that one of the ways that we struggle with what the Bible talks about when it talks about forgiveness and and why revenge is so attractive to us is because sometimes forgiveness feels like minimizing the offense, doesn't it? If you hit me and I don't hit you back at least as hard as you hit me, you're never really going to know how much you hurt me. If I forgive you, it's, it's almost going to seem like what you did to me doesn't matter, that, that I'm saying it was no big deal, or that it didn't really hurt, that it's just fine. Do you ever say that? It's your natural impulse, I bet, when someone says, hey, I'm sorry. You say, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. No big deal. But it is. It's a real offense. Nabal has really done something wrong. Remember that conversation between Jesus and Peter? Uh, Peter says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times. So gracious he is. And Jesus said, no. <laughs> Seven times, 70 times. 490 times. Don't you think, I, you shouldn't keep track of this, but don't you keep think that sometime between forgiveness number 383 and 384, it's going to occur to you that the person who keeps hurting you really just doesn't get it? Something is wrong. And if you forgive them that 384th time, are they really going to understand the damage that they are doing? Revenge is attractive. When the Bible calls us to forgive, it does not do so out of ignorance. The Bible isn't trying to minimize offenses. The Bible isn't trying to minimize injustice when it calls us to forgive. The Bible is very clear about this. Forgiveness demands that someone bear the price of that relational rupture. And, and when you forgive someone, you are saying, I will bear the price of this relationship relational damage that you have done. So forgiveness is. Now, let's move on to scene number three here. Abigail intercedes. Abigail intercedes. That's in verses 14 through 35. Nabal had said that... This is funny. Nabal had said that David is nothing more than a rebellious servant. And what's funny is that that's the only kind of servant that Nabal has. (laughs) His servants behind his back go to his wife, and she concocts his plan behind his back too. Uh, Peter Leithart said this is a very interesting passage when we think about the the roles that the Bible teaches us uh, when it comes to manhood and womanhood and in, in a marriage. Abigail is a hero here in this story, and she is a hero most evidently when she treats her husband like the fool he is. Hmm, I have to think about that. Well, uh, so Abigail's wise. She prepares food uh, that, that Nabal should have sent, and then she goes and delivers one of the best speeches in the whole Old Testament. David has made this beautiful speech in chapter twenty-four. We looked at that last week. Now Abigail's making this beautiful speech in chapter twenty-five, and she begins like David did on her face before him. Now think about this: how risky this is. Here comes David and his troops, four hundred men, and their they're angry and they're hungry. They're what hangry, right? That phrase, okay? And they're—he's David is reve- bent on revenge. He's angry. He's being a little vulgar. And uh, she, this woman, by herself, comes out and kneels before him on the ground. And her speech does three things. The first thing she does is she intercedes for her husband. Verse 25, she, she basically says to him, um, well, she says, please forgive me. I know my husband's a fool and I didn't know your servants came. I should have, uh, she, she essentially says to him, I should have present, prevented Nabal from being a fool. And, and now she's trying to present, prevent David from acting foolishly too. Here's something else about leadership that we we can take here just a moment. Impulsiveness is dangerous in positions of leadership, that's true, but so is the the refusal to grow and to change. It's not to your credit for you to say that you're the same person today that you were 30 years ago. That is not to your credit. And, and, And David is, well, wise leaders, all wise leaders in the Bible grow and change. I think that's why Paul told Timothy, let your progress be evident to everyone. I think in this passage we see this beautiful connection between David and his son Solomon and the book of Proverbs. Do you know how, how many times Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs does Solomon warn us, listen to wise advice. When someone comes and, and, and stops you and wants to talk to you frankly, listen to them. I wonder if Solomon learned this when David was sitting around with, with his son. Hey, Solomon, did I ever tell you about nabal <laughs> well, you know abigail she she came and warned me i was a hothead and i was going to do something foolish and she came and stopped me solomon you listen to wise people right solomon takes notes and he writes these beautiful proverbs It's interesting in the book of proverbs for a number of reasons wisdom is personified as a beautiful woman maybe abigail played a role there too so she intercedes for her husband. The second thing she does is she reminds David of his destiny. She's speaking prophetically, verse 28. Let's look at what it says again. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. She's the first one in the book to talk about David's d- It's going to come up a lot in 2 Samuel 7. But Abigail is the one who recognizes that she's speaking prophetically. And then she uses this image in verse 29 This is brilliant. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of you, David, will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Why would she use this phrase? Oh, it's brilliant. So she says to David, David, you are God's treasured possession. And he's going to keep you close in the bundle of the living. So um, every child has in their room some place where they keep their secret treasures. Mine was a little cedar wood box with a painting of the United States Capitol on it that I bought sometime in Washington, D.C., It had a little brass clasp on it, and you open it up, and that's where you keep your special treasures. Every child has one of those. And and Abigail says to David, you are in God's treasured box, but your enemies, what's God going to do with them? He's going to throw them away. Rocks to be wasted and thrown away. Now, why would she use this image? Because she knows David's story. You fought Goliath, David. Do you remember that? Goliath, he was the real enemy. Nabal, he's just a pain. He's not an enemy. You know how to deal with God's enemies. You know how to deal with your enemies. You sure you want to do this with Nabal? Now, the third thing she does here, that this, she saves David from bloodshed. She saves David from bloodshed. Verse 31. My Lord will not have on his conscience, if you stop, David, you will not have on your conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged yourself. This is not the way to start a lasting dynasty, she says to him. Um, if, if if you if you get to the throne by slashing and killing everybody who's against you, will never be safe. You will never have a peaceful throne. No one ever wins King of the Mountain, right? You play the game with your friends. No one ever wins. You might get up there for a few seconds, but someone is coming. David, uh, Abigail says to David, if you get to the throne this way, you'll never have a moment's peace. This is unnecessary bloodshed. This is not the way that a dynasty should start. In one sense, David is asking, uh, Abigail is asking David, are you going to take matters into your own hands here, or are you going to wait patiently for the Lord? Which of those two things are you going to do? Now, let me make a connection in this book, and I want to do so tentatively here this morning because it, it is tentative. S- some people see a very subtle tie in this passage between Abigail and Bathsheba. We haven't talked about Bathsheba yet. Her story's coming up, but you probably know her story well. In, in his dealings with both Abigail and Bathsheba, David is being driven by passion, lust on the one hand and revenge on the other. Abigail comes, she successfully talks David down and saves the life of her husband, at least in the moment, keeps David from killing her. Bathsheba does not talk David down, and David murders her husband. And and actually, you know what? um, While we're thinking about that story, Abigail was exactly right about what would happen to David if he committed murder against Nabal. Because after David murders Bathsheba's husband, his life is driven by this paralyzing guilt that he can't overcome. She's right. She's right about what happens. Now, we should be careful here. See, the Bible, nowhere does it ever blame Bathsheba for what happened to David. I'm certainly not blaming uh, Bathsheba for what happened with David. When, when the king calls, you have to answer. She's powerless. She's the victim of his lust. But perhaps the comparison, if you think about Abigail and Bathsheba and compare the two, it helps us appreciate Abigail all the more. Look at this woman. She is very impressive. David actually sees it. He, he praises her. Three blessings. Blessed be the Lord for sending you to me. Blessed is the advice that you have given me. Blessed are you for coming. Now, the final scene here. Nabal dies and Abigail becomes David's wife. It's the end of the story. So Abigail stops David, he goes back and she returns home to find her husband in a feast fit for a king. Remember Nabal and Saul are just, they're the same character here that he's, Nabal standing in for Saul, he's feasting like a king, like a King Saul. He's so drunk that his wife can't talk to him. In the morning he's sober and she tells him what she did and he suffers a stroke and 10 days later he dies and it is clear this is judgment from God. The text says the Lord put him to death. And David heard, hears about it in verse 39, and he says, Praise be to the Lord. Again, I'm not sure Cory Ten Boom would say that. Hmm. Praise be to the Lord, and, and he's, he's, he's thankful to God for defending him against Nabal and for keeping him from doing wrong. God, God protected David. Actually, it makes me think of a Psalm 5.8. I wrote that down in your note sheet, I think. Psalm 5.8 is the prayer that David had prayed. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. See, the pressure that enemies bring, they'll bring pressure that will cause you to stray or to disobey God, to act outside of his will. God, protect me. Take me on a straight path when enemies come near. And God protected David. He's praising him for it. Then he takes Abigail as his wife. And by, by taking Abigail as his wife, he lays claim to Nabal's estate and his influence. And while we're talking about wives, you should know that Abigail is David's second wife, actually his third wife. Um, this does not bode well for him. This is not going to go well for him. Uh, Michael, his first wife, the text tells us, was given by Saul to uh, uh, an, another man. Saul is treating David like he's dead by giving Michael away. At the end of the book, think about this here, at the end of the book, both Nabal and Saul are dead, and David has claimed Nabal's wife and his property, and he has claimed save Saul's throne. Hmm. Now what should we make of this story here? Uh, how does it help us work through our own struggles? Let me close with, with four items here. Lord, in your righteousness, keep me because of my enemies. Well, what does that look like? Here's four things. Number one, distrust your first response. Distrust your first responses. When David perceives contempt for Nabal, his first thought is to grab his sword and go swing it at somebody. Remember what the Bible says about anger. Human anger does not produce God's righteousness. So, distrust your first response. Second, recognize and receive the wisdom that God provides. Recognize and receive the wisdom that God provides. Bob prayed about this when he was praying this morning. Abigail is almost serving as a prophet for David. She's, she's counseling him wisely. And to, her, to his credit, David responds, I wonder if you're listening to the wisdom that God provides you. All right, here's number three. Take a long look at your suffering. Take a long look at your suffering. Abigail is is trying to help David by seeing this offense that he has received from Nabal in a long-term look. Think about David. Think about God's long-term plan. What is he going to do? What's he going to do for your life? What has he promised you? Do you have conflicts in your memory, things that you fought about that were a long time ago and you look back at them and you think, that was That was so silly you have conflicts like that? This destroys wedding planning, right? The napkins must be blue cotton. If they're not blue cotton, this wedding is off, right? You you should ask uh, any married couple that's been married more than two years about the color of their napkins at their wedding, and they might not remember, and they certainly won't care. Uh, There's a lot of nursery wars in the rearview mirror, aren't there? Cheerios, only for my child at 11.07 a.m., anything else is unacceptable. And if you don't give them to them at 11.07, we're talking church discipline here, right? I'm talking about small things. Those are small things, really, except, well, they don't feel small at the moment, especially if your Cheerio eating time interferes with afternoon nap time. That's not a small issue. They're small things, right? The long look... Changes your perspective even on big things. How do I know that? I'm not trying to minimize injustice. I'm not trying to minimize pain. But remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He said that our afflictions are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is ours. In a sense, Abigail says to David, What you've experienced from Nabal is real, it was a real offense but it's light and momentary in comparison to what God has planned for you. One of the reasons that followers of Jesus can forbear, one of the reasons that we can forgive because we know is because we know that this is not all there is. This life is not all there is. My hope for happiness is not solely invested in this life. I don't have to fight for it tooth and nail. You have to refuse your, your uh, apology or refuse to forgive you because my hope for my life is really going to begin on the day that I died. That's when my life is really going to begin. And, and having that long term perspective puts our suffering in a different light. I know I'm talking this morning to people who have had, had hard things happen to you, people have done grievously hard things. I'm not trying to minimize them at all. I, I mean, Paul uses the word light and momentary. That, that, they don't feel that way when you're going through them. It's, you only learn to see them when you think about the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, here's number four. Number four. Wait patiently for God's justice. Wait patiently for God's justice. Again, we return to what we read read in First Peter last week about the Lord Jesus. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And that may be the problem that some of you have. You have a bone to pick with this? Maybe you do. See, if I forgive people, God is just so nice that He'll let everyone get off. He's just too nice. They're not going to get what they deserve if I trust it into God's care because he's too nice. Actually, underneath that, there may be a real objection to Christianity. I wish I knew who told the story originally. I can't remember who it was, but I heard a man preaching. He was teaching a lesson and he, was, he told us about an experience he had in Europe. He was traveling in Europe doing some Bible teaching and evangelistic work. And he went to Germany and had a translator who was with him. He could speak German. And she went with him and she, she translated all of his Bible lessons and all of his lectures. And at the beginning, they were getting acquainted. And, and as they started talking more during breaks, he was talking to this translator. She, she told him she was an atheist. She's translating the Bible and his Bible lessons these weeks. And, and um, her interest began to grow, and he, he started talking to her about, about the Lord Jesus. and uh, he, He's our Savior. He died on the cross. He satisfied God's wrath for our sin. God offers forgiveness and life to anyone who receives receive it by faith. He's, he's talking to her about this. She really seems interested. She's warming to this good news until one day she says to him, If Adolf Hitler had turned to Jesus and asked for forgiveness, could he have been forgiven? Could he have eternal life that you're talking about? And the man answered he said, Well, uh, Jesus' death is sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world, even, even people as wicked as Adolf Hitler. She closed completely to him. She said, I will not worship a God like that. But God cares about justice far more than she does. He cares about justice far more than you do. In fact, the cross is proof itself of that. God cares deeply about justice. He cares so deeply about justice that he offered his own son to satisfy all of the demands of his justice. The cross is the pinnacle uh, demonstration of the justice and love of God, so we trust Him. He will do what is right. He cares about justice. We can be patient with Him, with, with life, with the troubles that come. We pray for justice, don't we? We work to ensure that justice takes place. We pray for our enemies, and we pray that God will keep us from resentment, and we do all of those things at the same time. And then we will have reason to say with David, Praise be to the Lord. Let's pray, shall we? Father, how thankful we are to you for this story, uh, this event in David's life that you told us about. We, even as we read Samuel, can see the fruit of it in his life. And it changed how he responded to Saul. Lord, we would come this morning and we would ask you to bring about fruitfulness in our lives as we read this story. It's funny. Samuel is supposed to be about kings and leaders. And and Lord, we're finding that it's about forgiveness and justice and revenge. Father, I do pray that in your kindness, again I ask this, that you would make us like the Lord Jesus and that we're able to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. You know about the men and women in this room who have deep grievances. Show them mercy. Guard them from resentment. Remind them of your justice, which is perfect and whole. David said in the Psalms, the Lord is renowned in all the earth for his justice. Remind us of that so that we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.